This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Ashok Gadgil. I'm the director of Environmental Energy Technologies Division. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome today's distinguished speaker in the Distinguished Lecturer Series, uh, Professor Andrew Hargadon. Uh, his first two degrees are straight in mechanical engineering design from Stanford, and PhD is also from engineering uh, in Stanford, looking at management of engineering. I think that's what the department right, is called. Right. Uh, he has worked at Apple. Uh, uh, he has taught, uh, I think, at Stanford before. You're you're a fellow of. Uh, Future professor, I don't quite understand what that Sloan Fellowship means. So. But he was a he was a Sloan Fellow as a future professor <laughs> at Stanford, and now he is a professor. <laughs> so Sloan predicted right. Uh, and I heard him speak, and it's extraordinary to get insights from somebody who can step back and look at a forest rather than individually, uh, most scientists being stuck in looking at, uh, I guess, individual cells on leaves of trees. <laughs> so uh, he's the founding director for the Center of Energy Efficiency at UC Davis, uh, which beat out proposals both from Stanford and Berkeley uh, for the big CalSAF grant. And he's also the founding director of the Child Family Center, I think, for innovation institute. and yeah, institute for innovation and entrepreneurship, which I think you continue to direct. Right. So, without further ado, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank So thank you, Ashok, for the uh, invitation. It's wonderful to come here. Uh, in fact, I, I've worked with a number of you uh, in my role at the Energy Efficiency Center. And, uh, and so it was uh, good to come down here. I feel like we share a common goal of trying to uh, bring the best in science and engineering to bear on, on environmental challenges. That's certainly something that we focus a lot on at UC Davis uh, and in our, both our Energy Efficiency Center and our Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So, what I want to talk about today is a, uh, one of the research questions that's been guiding my work for the last decade or so. And let me uh, uh, begin with the context in which that, that, the, that question got sparked. So when James Watt developed his steam engine, the steam engine itself had been around for 75 years, uh, pumping water from coal mines. And in fact, it wouldn't be another 30 years until Watt's design had an impact on the Industrial Revolution. Henry Ford's Model T uh, came about 30 years after the original commercial auto industry got its start. And Edison's light bulb came after roughly 75 years worth of electric lighting before he uh, and his design had a profound impact on the electric age. So the question that that sticks with me with these stories, when you look closer at them, is where do technology revolutions come from if, in fact, we remember these people, Watt, Ford, and Edison, and we give them often much more credit 
for having launched this revolution. And of course, we point to the technologies that they provided us. So this is a really important question, I think, for me, because as, as I mentioned in my abstract, I don't remember a time when calls for innovation have been any louder. In other words, we're looking at the great social challenges, environmental challenges of our day, and everybody from voters to politicians to the folks in office already trying to drive the next technology revolutions and trying to pick which ones will happen uh, are, are all calling for more innovation. In fact, I, you know, it's interesting, but a lot of that pressure is kind of falling on you guys, right? Your budgets have certainly shifted around a lot, and, you, you know, and the pressure to develop the next great technology is, is enormous. But at the same time, the public and political conceptions about innovation are fairly distorted. And, and I, one I want to talk about is one of those distortions. In fact, that distortion has two causes. The first of which is psychological, and also I'll mention that first. It's a cause-consequence bias. It's a cognitive bias by which we try and figure out what happened. Pretty much in anything. You know, if anything happens, we try and figure out how it happened, why it happened. And one of the things we do is we attempt to match consequence to cause. In other words, if the consequence was enormous, then the cause must have been enormous, whatever that cause was. Now, there are two kinds of causes. There are general causes, which are the large, long-term, diffuse causes in the, atmosphere, in the world. And then there are inciting causes, particular things that happen that incite, trigger things. And what we tend to do is, when an enormous consequence has happened, we look for the inciting cause and would give it enormous import as well. Best example I can give you, right? When the straw breaks the camel's back, we tend to give enormous weight, literally and sort of cognitively, towards that last straw, and we ignore all of the other straws that came before it. And in fact, that's actually a very useful way of explaining our understanding of innovation. Because in fact, when we look at innovation, what we tend to see is the enormous revolution that happens, and then we look around quickly to see who was standing nearby when that happened, <laughs> and give that enormous causal weight. So what we end up with is something called the great man theory of innovation. And this is, a, this is a theory that was first introduced in history to explain the world as nothing more than a series of great men and their impact on it. Uh, that got lost pretty quickly in the late 1800s, but it's, it's persisted in the study of innovation and particularly technology revolutions. And what you end up with then is like this list. This was a list from my daughter's elementary school encyclopedia. What we end up with is continually reinforcing in the public's mind the notion that for every great idea, there's a single point in time when a single individual has that idea. And before that, the idea doesn't exist. And after that, the world is never the same. And you end up with this enormous causal weight being placed on a single person in a single idea in a single moment. And how do you think that shapes the way we think about the innovation process? We manage it, we pursue it, we invest in it at not just an individual level, but an organizational level and a political sort of national level. So in fact, the way it interesting, the other reason that this is interesting is because there is a dynamic at work. It's a technological dynamic. It's called the long fuse big bang. And what that means is that, well, Rudy Dornbusch said it best. He's an economist who said, things take longer to happen than you think they will, 
And then they happen faster than you thought they could. <laughs> and by that, what I mean is the steam engine, the automobile, the electric light took decades, almost centuries to develop. And then overnight, well, not overnight, but literally within about 10 years, those industries were fixed. And we live today in the very same electric industry that was established literally in the first decade in which things began to take, take shape. So when we think about the long fuse, what's interesting in the electrical age, which is I'll, I'll give you a brief history of the, of the electrical age, uh, the modern electric age. What we have is uh, in 1800, Alessandro Volta, uh, Volta gave us the first sort of predictable source of electricity, the battery the voltaic battery. By uh, the 18, well, 1808, Humphrey Davy gave us the two kinds of light we would be living with, essentially. Arc lighting and incandescent lighting. You either consume materials in, a, in, a, in, a, in electrodes, and they create a spark, which, we, which gives us light, or you heat an, an element to incandescence, and it gives us light. So that was already well known. That was already demonstrated in 1808. By the 1830s, that was now, uh, people were developing lighting in both of those cases using batteries. Also in the 1830s, you got um, uh, uh, the telegraph industry, the first electromechanic use of, of electricity. Connect batteries and move things at a distance. In this case, electromagnets. Create an electromagnet at a distance. You can move an, uh, uh, a piston and essentially cause action which gave you the telegraph, which exploded in the 1830s and created an industry which really didn't change for the next 100 years. But also in the 1830s, you began to get the first electromechanical, or the mechanical origins of electricity, the dynamos, the generators. And a Frenchman, uh, uh, Pixie, gave us the first one. But then fairly quickly after that, in the 1840s and 50s, you began to see other dynamos being created. In the 1860s, that industry exploded. The late 1860s, now all of a sudden we had dynamos, the, the, a, a predictable and large source of power. This was, in fact, the Graham dynamo, then the Wallace and Farmer dynamo. And all of these things took place in really 1867 to 1877, the decade before Edison and the electric light. And why did they emerge so quickly? They emerged because the arc light caused a demand for these, these dynamos and over that decade, uh, you began immediately to see not just individual arc lighting systems, or arc lights powered by generators, but entire series of arc lights powered. So that by 1877, Brooklyn Bridge was lit by arc lights in series run by one of these generators. Central Park was lit by arc lighting. Uh, large mansions, large uh, uh, open spaces and factories were called isolated electric systems, were lit by these systems. So this is to give you some context that when Edison decided to work on the electric light in 1878, there were in place arc lights, incandescent bulbs, there were uh, generators, there were thriving businesses running isolated electric systems using generators to produce uh, arc light uh, in, in various covered spaces. And so the leap to a system using generators to produce incandescent light was not all of that cognitively great. So why is it that we remember Edison? 
Why is it in all of this that we look at Edison and we wonder, in fact, here's a picture of uh, a Park Avenue being lit by arc lighting at night. Why is it then that we look at the Edison light bulb and in fact, we look at it daily probably in terms of PowerPoint presentations, clip art, posters on the wall to describe creativity. What gives us that iconic image, that weight? When really, from another argument, you could say that that electric light was nothing more than the straw that broke the camel's back and doesn't really deserve a whole lot more weight than all of the other straws that came before it. So that's what I want to talk about. Because essentially, when you look at the Edison impact, what you find is that there were 75 years of gradual accumulation of all of the elements that were necessary to make Edison's system of electric lighting. So that by the time he started, all of the elements were there. Then, within a short period, 10 years, between 1882, when he opened his, his Pearl Street station, and 1892, all of the elements in the structure of the electric industry we know today were set in place. In fact, interestingly, in that decade, almost all of the large organizations that have dominated the electric industry for the last 100 years were established. Siemens, General Electric, Westinghouse, Tom, Thompson Houston, which is now Alstom, all of these companies and a, uh, and a wide range of other didn't exist in the 70s and in the 80s came into play and by the 1890s that industry was set and we live with it today, including the regulatory structure, the electrical grid, um, and many of the other uh, associated technologies and political uh, arrangements. So that's what I want to talk about today. And one of the things that it tells us when we look at that, if we look closely at the technology at work, is that innovation is really about, in, about connecting, not inventing. Now, I know, I know it sounds a little odd to do that, but bear with me here for a second while I talk about it. Here's a comment that Edison made after visiting Wallace, uh, Wallace's shop, Wallace of the Wallace Farmer Generator, Dynamo. He said, in Wallace's shop, I saw for the first time everything in practical operation. This was the dynamo, the, seri the wiring, and the bulbs. It was all before me. I saw the thing had not gone so far, but that I had a chance. I saw what had been done had never been made practically useful. The intense light had not been subdivided so that it could be brought into private house. And what he means by that last comment was, he saw an entire electric system, but he saw it being built around arc lighting. It had never been built around the incandescent bulb, which is a smaller light capable not of blinding, but rather of illuminating a room. So here we have from Edison himself the recognition that everything in place was there. He simply needed to, to put it together in the right way. And that's what he did. Really, if we look at what Edison did, he took the best of existing electric lights. He took the best of dynamos that were out there powering arc lighting systems. He looked at the businesses of the arc lighting systems, how they were run and how much profit they made. He brought those together. He worked with regulators to define the scope of an electric utility that produced incandescent bulbs. He worked with J.P. Morgan and other venture investors to fund this, uh, this effort. He borrowed from the utility business model of the gas companies. And he built actually franchises rather than electrical systems himself. He built one to power uh, uh, the Pearl Street Station. And then he sold the franchise to others who would power Boston and Cincinnati and Philadelphia and the other, and the other places. And, and then he worked with local investors in each of these areas to fund it. But the point I want to make with all of this is that one of the things that drove Edison was not the invention of any of these new, new elements in this system, but rather the arrangement, the particular combination of these elements that would make them commercially successful. And 
it's not that I'm interested in the commercial success so much as the impact that that rearrangement had on the state of the art, on the technology of the day. And in that particular case, it leads me to another recognition that I hadn't had before, which is perhaps we even have the causality backwards. If, it's, if, if innovation isn't about inventing, but rather connecting, then where does the invention come from? Because we know there is invention. And one of the things that surprised me the most was that a lot of the invention actually followed the revolution rather than led it. And, and if I give you a, a couple things, but the, the first of which is the recognition that it, the reason this invention follows rather than leads the revolution is because oftentimes there are great ideas out there. We simply don't hear about them because they haven't solved any problems we have yet. But when a revolution takes place, when a particular new arrangement of all of the existing elements comes into being, it is, as Churchill said, not the end and not the beginning of the end, but really the end of the beginning of this, uh, of this uh, episode of innovation. And in this particular case, when Edison identified a commercially viable system for producing electric light and using it in incandescent bulbs uh, ar around a city block or four city blocks in the case of Pearl Street Station or then entire cities very soon after that, all of the problems began to emerge of how to make this system work. And it was those very clear and very tangible problems that began to drive the innovation process or the invention process by focusing everyone's efforts towards solving particular aspects of the relationship between those elements. Thomas Hughes, as a historian that's looked at the early days of the electric industry, said Edison's concepts grew out of his need to find organizing principles that were powerful enough to integrate and give purposeful direction to the diverse factors and components of the electric system. What that meant was, in fact, I believe it's the next, I'll give you a very, a very concrete example. What that meant in particular, for example, was if you were to build an electric lighting system that powered four city blocks, Pearl Street Station, or anywhere else, this model meant, Edison did all of the economic calculations of the cost required to build it. And what he found fairly quickly was that the conductors, the lines, the copper lines required were actually a third of the entire cost of the project, just the copper alone. And out of that calculation came the realization that the electric lights, the incandescent lights of the day, weren't going to be good enough because they had a low resistance to them. And he needed something that would have a high enough resistance that you wouldn't be burning all of your energy heating the copper lines of the conductors running from the central station out to all of the buildings. So the very problem of the cost of the copper wiring drove him to develop a brand new electric light, one that had a high internal resistance, that would therefore reduce the cost of copper. And if we remember anything for his electric light's novelty, it actually should be this difference. The switch from a low resistance bulb to a high resistance bulb, and a filament that could incandesce it at high resistance, and thus save on the cost of copper. The other thing that he had to do as a result of that was also to create a new generator by taking all of the existing generators, which had been designed for arc lights, which were, another, were a low resistance, and convert them, excuse me, they were a high resistance because they were run in series. He had to convert that to a low resistance to run the parallel circuit that would be his electricity grid. Now, all of this is to say that most of the invention, well, let me put it in numbers first. 
To tune his generators to his electric light, he had to reinvent the generator. He didn't have to invent it. He simply had to adapt all of the ones who were out there. And if we look then at what he did, what we find quickly is, in his notebooks, when he founded the Edison Electric Company with this iconic invention of a light bulb, his company uh, submitted and were granted 14 patents for his inventions. When he began building the Pearl Street Station and got to work, so the first three years of his company, he was granted 14 patents. In the second three years, as he built out the Pearl Street Station, he was granted 368 patents. What this says actually very interestingly is almost all of his invention actually took place when he had to start making the system work. He had to develop a generator that powered the right light bulbs with the right economics associated with it. And then once he had that generator, he had to figure out a way to control it because if it looped out of of the voltage parameters or if it looped out of the current parameters, all the bulbs would pop. So he had to create new controllers on his generator to make sure that they didn't ever exceed the, the performance parameters. And then he had to create new bulbs that worked in parallel, and he had to create switches for those bulbs, and then he had to create electric meters in order to measure the electricity consumed in individual houses and offices. And, and then he had to create uh, uh, insulation for the wires to bury them underground. He had to create an enormous number of inventions simply to make the system work together. All the elements were there, but they hadn't been adapted to each other. And all of his inventive effort actually went into making the system work. But Edison wasn't the only one that began inventing only after he began building. If you look at the electric system, once he had it in place and could prove that there was commercial viability to it, that created a brand new set of demands that didn't exist just a few years before. So what we have here is Charles Parsons' steam turbine. In 1884, after the notion of the electric utility came into place, Charles Parsons built a steam turbine that was uh, capable of producing seven and, a, uh, seven and a half kilowatts of energy. And now, we look at this and think, actually, I mean, you may not look at this, but we look at that and think that's, well, you may not anymore look at that. I think that's amazing because it was, it was at least twice, almost three times the size of the existing uh, gen- uh, uh, turbines, the uh, steam engines. But at the same time, Two years earlier, there was no need for a, a, a steam turbine that produced seven and a half kilowatts worth of energy because there was, no, there was no system that consumed that much energy. Within the next 10 years, he produced a one megawatt, one megawatt steam engine. And again, 10 years earlier, there was no possible demand for such a large system, large solution. Now, all of a sudden, every city in the, in the country demanded one. Within another 10 years, he had a 25 megawatt system. In fact, it went from 7.5 kilowatts at 2% efficiency to 1 megawatt at 5% efficiency to 25 megawatts at 25% efficiency. And the reason for that dramatic improvement wasn't because he sat in a room alone coming up with that, but rather because the market demanded it and it had never been applied at that scale. At the same time, we have AC. Nikola Tesla and, and Westinghouse developed the first AC generators. And then almost immediately thereafter, the first AC motors. This happened in 1887, five years after Edison opened his Pearl Street station, and in fact uh, was the single sort of significant change in that decade that overturned Edison's dominance and gave it to uh, uh, Westinghouse and, and others who adopted the AC dynamo. 
But you're probably all familiar with the advantages of the AC motor. The AC dynamo and motor, the AC dynamo was more efficient at transmitting electricity at distance. Now, coming back five years earlier, everybody had isolated electric systems. Nobody bothered to generate and transmit electricity at distance. It wasn't until Edison proved the utility model of electricity was viable and people began building them that the AC motor had any economic value displacing the DC motor as a dynamo, excuse me, as a, as a dynamo, because nobody transmitted at a distance. So you didn't have any of these problems until the system came together. And then you had this flurry of invention as people solved these. And the AC motor, again, was a much more efficient and, and worked with the AC uh, uh, system. So not to belabor the point, but I think the, the challenge I want to bring to you is that, in fact, much of the innovation potential the, the, is, is in the connection of existing elements, which, once connected, immediately surfaces a wide range of problems for which inventions become valuable, valuable solutions. And just to, to bring that back uh, to, to the modern day, one of the things that it tells me is, in fact, when we study innovations, we often tend to look at individual ideas, materials, technologies. What we don't fully appreciate is the network itself is the innovation. The particular arrangement of organizing principles that Edison came up with to create an electric utility that was commercially viable. Once that's created, we recognize it as obvious and we begin to see immediately a new industry, industry structure take shape. So let me give you a modern example of that that I think you probably are all very familiar with. The iPod. It came out in 2001 and immediately overturned the MP3 player. Really, the, if, if, does anybody remember the Walkman? <laughs> does anybody remember thinking about the Walkman in 2002 or beyond? It went from 30,000 models in every retail environment you could imagine to absent within a period of about a year. And, and so we can say that the iPod fundamentally overturned the, uh, the, the music player market. We can also say that the iPod wasn't the first MP3 player on the market. In fact, we can say that the elements of the iPod were already there in places and then ultimately, in fact, in about 15 different MP3 players before Apple came out with theirs. So there was no invention there. In fact, um, when Apple developed their first iPods, they went out and they pieced together existing elements of the other MP3 players that were on, on the market. They used Portal Player for the chipsets. They went to Pixo Design for their user interface. They bought that company. They brought in their industrial design, but they used Wolfson, Microelectronics, Sharp, Sony, Linear Technology, and all of the MP3 licensing formats that they needed to license to build one of their own. So the novelty of the technology doesn't really account for their impact. One of the things that Apple did, though, that was different was that they recognized they had a, a, an organizing principle, a set of organizing principles around their system that was better than anybody else's. They could seamlessly tie their MP3 player to the Macintosh operating system and to the iTunes Music Store, which, of course, they didn't also build. They bought. And it was a knockoff, of course, of the Napster interface that was already out there. And then they brought in the electric, uh, the, the electric company. Then they brought in the record labels into the system to make it commercially viable. They confer that was the first opportunity the, elect uh, the radio... 
the record companies had, the record labels had, to sell their songs legally online. So they jumped into this system and they made it work. And then the system began to grow and podcasts and, and uh, user-generated content, the internet, photographs, television shows, movies, all became part of this system. And then soon after that, they incorporated cell phone circuitry into the iPod. You know, make no mistake, it didn't go the other way. The iPod or the, the iPhone is really an iPod with cell phone circuitry inside it. And one of the things they learned with the iPod was that it was a great developer platform. People could use it to develop applications that could run on that new system. And the application environment, in fact, was, was really a lot of the value of this new network. As Walt Mossberg said, he was one of the Wall Street Journal technology reporters, the iPhone was the first electronic device he had ever owned that got more valuable the longer he used it. Because more people would be writing more apps for it that all of a sudden answered the problem, you know, where'd you put your keys? Where, you know, what, what's your next appointment? Where are you? Where, you know, what do you need to do tomorrow? All of these things were things that you didn't really have an app for yet, and, and now all of a sudden you could have it. And it became more valuable, not because of any individual technological breakthrough, but rather because many of the things that were already out there in different elements came together in a particular way that gave us this. Now, it gave us this and had an enormous impact, right? We have 350 million iOS devices, iPhones, iPads, Apple TVs out there now that run this. With over 25 billion apps downloaded, we can see how much of a, a phenomenal uh, and ferocious shift this was from 10 years ago. But we can also see that effectively that industry structure is now in place. If you've been paying any attention to the Apple-Samsung uh, patent lawsuits, what's most interesting to me about that lawsuit was, in fact, that yes, the Android environment almost exactly replicated the iOS environment. Everything from the app stores and the app developers to down to the look and feel and the relationship between the operating system, the developers, the, uh, the retailers, and the, uh, the cellular carriers. That entire industry structure was not there roughly seven years ago, and I suspect that it will be here for the next 50 years because it's a structure that's now put in place that will be, that sort of froze overnight as soon as it was introduced. And what you have, again, is now most of the invention is actually being directed towards making the system work so seamlessly and smoothly together rather than creating new systems. So... What I want to finish with is a description of, of partly why this works so well. And, and what I want to do now is actually come back to one of the other examples I use, the auto industry, to understand how these impacts can drive revolutions so quickly. And it's not simply that they're put together from existing elements that are out there, but the process of putting together in that way has a profound uh, impact. This is Henry Ford's uh, mass production. The Model T was, again, a, a, you know, the car was a 30-year-old technology. What Ford was able to do was move it from a $3,000 product for rich people to a, a $300 product for the mass market. He introduced his Model T in 1906. In 1907, he began producing it. He produced 1,600 cars that first year. Seven years later, when he had perfected the system of mass production, he produced 265,000 cars a year. In other words, he went from 1,500 cars, cars a year to 1,000 cars a day 
And he went from $3,000 a car to $300 a car. There were four core technologies behind mass production. And in many ways, just exactly like the, 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 the vista that Edison had on the electric industry, Henry Ford could look out and see four core technologies as, as central elements to mass production. Interchangeable parts, the ability to build 400 or four wheels and have any one of those wheels, or excuse me, 4,000 wheels, and have any one of those wheels come down the line and go onto any one of those 2,000 axles onto any one of those 1,000 cars on any given day without worrying about filing anything to fit. It all came together seamlessly. It was continuous slow production. The ability to have barges of iron ore pulling up at one end of the factory, engines cast, engines machined, pistons inserted, engines uh, slapped onto chassis, wheels, etc., all coming and moving continuously through the factory. And what was essentially a mass balance equation. I'll be quick on this as we come to an end. The third piece was the assembly line. Ford said for eight hours a day, men become part of the machine. The assembly line allowed Ford to put people in the middle of that continuous slow production process and give them each very simple tasks to do and move the work past them. The last piece was the electric motor. The electric motor allowed Ford to decouple the factory system from a central steam engine, the source of power that was originally there, and allowed him to put his machines where they needed to be so that the work could flow continuously and then simply attach wires to it. In fact, in this picture, you see the remnants of the old factory design in the shafts and wheels and belts hanging from the ceiling, which was how the power from the central steam engine was distributed. But if you're going to reorganize your manufacturing system entirely around mass production, you need to put the, the machines where they're in the best order of the flow of the work. And that allowed him to do that. Now, what drove that innovation to have such an impact that we remember Ford rather than any of the other automobile uh, inventors or manufacturers? In many ways, it was the very fact that these ideas all existed before. Because had he tried to invent any one of these elements, they could not possibly have scaled from 1,500 cars a year to 1,000 cars a day. And in fact, in the last three years of his business, from roughly 25,000 cars a year to 265,000 cars a year. Now, the other reason I think this is so important is we recognize the interchangeable parts was an idea presented to Congress in 1797 as a way to make muskets. By the 1830s, a machine tool industry had evolved. By the 1870s, Bessemer steel and high-quality steel had come into play. So that by the time Ford got to it, he didn't have to develop any of those things. He could simply take the best machine tool designers and salesmen and give them carte blanche to design his factory. Continuous flow production was already happening near Detroit in Chicago as the food products being grown in the Midwest were being canned and shipped, packaged it and shipped back east. In fact, when he built his factory, he built it out of catalogs for parts from continuous slow production. Uh, the assembly line came from the Swift Meatpacking Plant in Detroit. As they looked at it, they went back there and they saw how the uh, slaughterhouses of Detroit, were, excuse me, of Chicago, were disassembling pigs and cows. Walter Klon, one of the uh, engineers who designed the assembly line at Ford, came back from that visit and said, if they can kill pigs and cows this way, we can build cars this way. And then finally, the electric motor was already in use in, in printing and textiles. And the important piece I want to say about this is the dramatic impacts that we look for in technology revolutions don't come from a brand new idea. They come from the connection of all of these existing ideas in new ways. Because when that connection happens, those ideas can immediately contribute. 
they can immediately begin to change the world. All that's left then is the inventions required to make those pieces fit together as well as possible. And the reason I like that story in particular is because Henry Ford understood that. Behind the Model T, when he was asked who invented it, he said, I invented nothing new. I simply assembled into a car the discoveries of other men behind whom were centuries of work. Had I worked 50 or 10 or even five years before, I would have failed. So it is with every new thing. Progress happens when all the factors that make for it are ready, and then it is inevitable. To teach that a comparatively few men are responsible for the greatest forward steps of mankind is the worst sort of nonsense. (laughs) It's a wonderful bookend to the great man theory in the sense that he understood completely. Now, mass production was, was just getting started, and it's improved enormously ever since then. But within those first 10 years, the automobile industry was fixed in the same way that within the first uh, uh, the decade of the 1880s, the electric industry was fixed. Not because of invention, but it drove invention, because the elements were already there. So I, I just want to finish then with, the, with this, uh, with a, you know, launching into the set of questions of where then does science come in when much of the invention that's required actually follows the new combinations rather than leads to them? All right, and I want to say thank you. Quick. Thanks so much, Andy. We have time for questions. Uh, I would like some volunteers to make sure that people who ask questions get the mic so everybody can hear what the questions are. First question. Can you hear me now? Good. Um, Thank you for your talk, Andrew. Um, So looking ahead, and uh, since a number of the people in the audience work on energy efficiency technologies, renewable energy technologies, do we need to wait for that person to come along? <laughs> or another way of asking this question, what's the role of government in invention, innovation, and similarly the role of markets in getting the right policies in place? Uh, this, is, this is the you know, billion-dollar question. Uh, actually, technically, in, in the U.S., it's about a $55 billion question, right? How much uh, funding we have for basic research in the country. Uh, I think one of the most important things we need to be doing is, is rethinking the major drivers of innovation. So I, I, science, you know, science clearly provides benefits. But when we begin to think of our investments in science as solving specific problems in specific time frames, that's when we get into trouble. Because you know, there was 75 years of good science developing uh, the battery, electric light, uh, arc lighting, lots of nice explorations. But it wasn't until it became a commercially possible system that, that we really had the, the tremendous change that we then now look to and say, climate change. We need a change. We need it now. Where's our science? And, and it doesn't work that way. So I think part of our challenge is simply to, to get a better shared understanding of what are the engines of change. And often, to be quite blunt, you know, the market is that engine of change, it, it, and, and you can't go against it. In other words, you can't artificially create a market 
that isn't there. We're, we're seeing that now with, the, you know, with solar and, and uh, you know, the European subsidies are gone. Our subsidies under pressure. And, and is the market going to survive when, the, when, the, when part of the commercial value of it is no longer there? Um, we're seeing it in, in, in cars and, and, and energy storage and car batteries. So I, I think that, you know, that I, I don't mean to be punting on the question, but I think we need to recognize what drives the major challenges, and often those, those major challenges aren't clearly identified until a commercially viable system becomes accepted. And then, immediately, there are very clear sets of problems associated with it. And, and now everybody's scrambling for a scientific solution to those specific problems. And, and uh, so it's almost a bit of taking the pressure off of science to lead these revolutions, but putting pressure back onto science to be engaged in the conversations that are happening around emerging systems when they do take off. Because that's when the problems are clearly there. Um, you know, there's a, there's a historic ch- shift. Up until about the 19, between 1930 and 1950 is when there was a slow separation between R&D and manufacturing. And no longer were the R&D professionals housed in the same offices and factories as the manufacturing was. Uh, they were put off into office parks, into R&D facilities, and they were no longer connected to the problems of, of commercial, you know, of manufacture. And that's when, in many cases in organizations, R&D stopped being useful to manufacturing and started being a separate wing devoted towards, in many ways, creating brand new opportunities. Which, you know, when we look at AT&T and, and Kodak and, and, and uh, Xerox and, and others, we find didn't really work out so well. So, you know, finding ways to, to merge them back together again at the appropriate moments is, I think, going to be critical. I want to ask if maybe Henry Ford's quote could be used to support the big man theory of science in the following way. At the end of the day, it's Henry Ford who made the money off all those discoveries. And don't we need the big man theory in order to keep those hundreds of other people inventing things so uh, Henry Ford can come along? Yeah, there's a, well, there's the, you know, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs. You know, these are great. Great, but they're great for different reasons. But I also think we need to bear in mind his claim that, you know, had I tried 50 or 10 or even five years before, you know, I I couldn't. But then it was inevitable. You know, once those systems are in place, we can give them credit for being the ones that drove that, their, their particular view of the system together. But in many ways, because those existing elements were all out there in the 1870s, for example, with electric lighting, you know, it's possible that that system was inevitable anyway. The elements were now there. So we have to, and we give them credit for what they accomplished, uh, but you know, I, I don't want to place them on too high a pedestal. But, but I will say that it's important to recognize that the, the, innovative, the effort at innovation needs to include people who are thinking at the systems level and people who are capable of going, like Steve Jobs, to the chairman of Universal Vivendi and convincing him that this organizing principle, this relationship, was worth committing to. The ability of Edison to go to J.P. Morgan and say, this system of electric lighting is worth investing in. Or to the regulators and saying, you should allow me to be treated like a gas utility because this system is viable. That, there, there's an enormous role played by those people who, who make those connections. Yeah. Despite, despite your downgrade 
<laughs> Despite your downgrading of scientists, um, most of us still find uh, still find we have to write proposals to uh, innovations initiative. Blah blah blah. I'm not downgrading. So, so, in fact, I'm so. <laughs> so. Can you, I'm a can professor you us, too, by the way. I make my living by research. Can you can you give us something useful to put in our proposal specifically? What is your favorite um, innovations uh, book of the day that the management weenies who are reading our proposals will be will have written? <laughs> read, will have read. Sorry, isn't that scary? That's a rolling, and it's a rolling. I was talking to Asher about this. It's a rolling five-year average, right? Every we have a new management theory every couple of years, and people don't remember beyond the last five years. Um, and it's no longer good to call yourself the Google of whatever you're doing because that's the, the bloom is off that rose already. Uh, no, I, you know, I, honestly, I think the, the best thing can be, um, I, and, and believe, I'm a scientist too. I simply happen to be a social scientist, um, which means we have no pressure to change the world, right? We're simply <laughs> observing it. But, but we, still, we still write grant proposals, and, and you know, our biggest challenge is to, is to um, yeah, industry partners and proof of, uh, you know, proof of clear need. But, you know, you run the risk because it's when you have a clear problem to be working on, you have something you can now fall short of. And, uh, you know, I, and I, I can't speak to you, but I, I can speak to the university culture, which is the last thing we want are to be held accountable for specific, you know, for solving specific problems. And so we have this dilemma of, you know, claiming that we're, we're vital to the innovation process because we're solving, you know, humanity's problems, uh, but just don't put us on any one of them or hold us to any timetable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great, uh, great gig if you can get it. I'm concerned about the, uh, the rollout of new technology and the, uh, the missteps in design and the mishaps that happen afterwards. Uh, I think everybody in this room has been felt like they were beta testing Microsoft software at one point or another. <laughs> I'm, I'm, as an ergonomist, I've been involved in lots of poorly designed equipment, tools, uh, keyboards, etc. So um, could you comment on this? I have a feeling that some of this goes back to your comments on the separation of R&D and manufacturing historically. But could you comment on how we could do a better job of, of not putting our customers in the position of beta testing everything we put out? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, it, one of the things that I've, I found uh, uh, in working with our, with our... I spent a lot of time with our scientists trying to commercialize their work. And, um, or actually trying to educate them in commercializing their work. And one of the challenges is the... The difficulty of iterating, of prototyping, of getting a, a, a solution in place that others can use that are not PhDs and are not, you know, um, and, and that cycle, the iterative cycle is really the crucial piece of that. The more times we can get through it, the less we're exposing our customer to the beta problem because we've developed, you know, we've developed our betas, we've used them, we've shared them, we've improved on them. Oftentimes, we re- what we release at, a, at, at our university, and I think at most universities, is, is the best thing we could possibly build with the basic research grant that we were given. Not the thing that's best to be used or could, you know, the best to be manufactured at scale, but rather the best thing that we could do that, to generate the best scientific results in our experiments. And we leave it to everybody else to try and figure out how to then take that and, and, and find something useful to do with it. And it usually ends up being too costly and... and uh, 
and and, uh, and sort of fragile for its its, its final uses. Yeah. Uh, hi, up here. The, the, I found the first question to be very interesting, and I, I think your presentation actually offers a slightly uh, another answer to that question. Yeah. Which the question was sort of what is the role? There was a question of what is the role of government in all of this, uh. and, and it seems that from your presentation that once the system is put into place, that's going to spark uh, a whole round of, inno- of innovation, of, of, of invention, to solve all the problems that are created by that system put in, being put into place. Right. But you note that that system could only be put into place when a whole bunch of other stuff happened first. And that other stuff wasn't, there wasn't as much of an economic driver for that other stuff because that big system wasn't in ah. place. So it's sort of, to me, it sort of, it, 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 it uh, encouraged gov- encourages a government investment in the basic uh, science to produce inventions that the may not be, the, the need for those inventions may not yet be clear. So there's an advancement sure. stage that happens before the system is in place. Because once that happens, okay, then there's commercial drivers for all those other inventions that the government doesn't need to be involved with. Okay, so let me, let me muddy that water for you. That's a great response, and I appreciate it, because you... Uh, yes, there's absolutely a role for generating new, new, new science, new findings, new discoveries. Um, there's also an enormous role for science in explaining old discoveries. So the laws of thermodynamics, you know, were built to explain why steam engines blew up. You know, they weren't... They didn't invent steam engines. They explained them. And, in fact, Hooke's law really was the driver that allowed Watt to understand what was going on with all of the energy being lost in the old Newcomen engines and design his system. So there's an enormous role for science, but it's not... But it, should be, it shouldn't be placed in... It shouldn't be given responsibility for creating the next revolutions because that linkage, that causal linkage isn't there. The other thing you mentioned about science that's really important to recognize is... I'm sorry, government, is that... Government drove, the government didn't uh, discover penicillin, but it drove the commercial manufacture of it. And, and, and I mean, it was one thing to isolate and, and manufacture small quantities of penicillin in a laboratory able to test on a dozen mice or six people, barely. But when you got to producing uh, millions of units of it a day, that, had, that was funded by government as part of the mobilization of World War II. And that was where most of the invention in penicillin took place, was in learning how to build it at scale. Radar existed in the elements already by World War II, but it was government procurement that said, we're going to wire the entire coast of England with radar. And, and then, you know, that system, once that system was built, you know, they provided the impetus, the, the commercial value for that system. Transistors, the same. The missile industry in the 50s were what drove the development of the transistor industry, the semiconductor industry. So government plays an enormous role, not only in funding the original science that gets things moving, but in actually being the customer of that first system. And I think that's actually where, where government is sort of falling short on a lot of this energy stuff, is we have, you know, the military has yet to fully embrace the value and say, I want these systems. You know, you want to see advances in microgrids? Wait till the government says, I want microgrids on every plant, and I want, you know, and then... Uh, as soon, then we're going to see immediately the problems we have with them and we'll start to bring them economically down into the viable range for elsewhere. So, so the government plays two roles. I think we're actually weaker on the procurement role 
and, and governments putting way too much responsibility on the scientists for coming up with the next great transition. The, sorry, I wanna, you'll get me talking all day. The important thing to remember on the, the, the advances in dynamos were driven by arc lighting systems. So there was commercial value in developing the dynamos. It was for arc lights. It was, and so, so there was always, usually always something else, some intermediate markets that are driving a lot of stuff. So uh, we have time for two more questions uh, respecting the schedule for yeah. the talk. But uh, maybe we have a little more informal questions afterwards. One is from Amol there, and second is from somebody there whom I can't see. Okay. Okay. Yes, okay. Really fascinating talk. Uh, I think the question about uh, what is the role of the government, right? I think the question is about, it's not about yes and no, it's about scale. Scale in a sense, is the current investment in RD&D need to increase twice or five times to uh, address some of the challenges we are facing? And that's where I think uh, having some empirical understanding of a linking between uh, the funding to RD&D, which creates kind of the necessary condition. I, will, I mean, that's one way to put it, that it creates a necessary condition for innovation to happen. It's not a sufficient condition, because then you need these connectors to connect it. But that's the question that's going to get asked. Should we fund it at a $100 billion level, or should we fund it at a 500? What's the society's return on RD&D investment? Any, any kind of insights from your empirical work, or any kind of insights you can draw on, that would be uh, very useful. You know, to be honest, I, 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 you know, whether we funded it at fifty billion, a hundred billion, five hundred billion, it's it's a matter of where we fund it, how we use those funds. And RDD and D is a wide spectrum, uh, you know, of places to put that money. Um, but it's also how we hold it accountable. You know, it's if we put all of that money into early stage research and we neglect the development, deployment, dem demonstration, and deployment, then we're spending it badly. But you know, so we need, it needs to be the appropriate balance is really what I think you're asking for, is how much would you put in each bucket. But I even think that's a dangerous question because most of the invention that needs to come will come from systems that are emerging, that have already been adopted by the market in some preliminary form or by, you know, by government as market in some preliminary form. And so there needs to be even a little bit more strategic investment than that that says, you know, these are markets where there is commercial viability. Now, how do we bring the best science to bear on the problems associated with it? How do we, you know, it's, it's, it's tipping the scales, but it's often not tipping the scales with new science research projects that may take five or ten years, but rather with the people who have done the last generation's worth of science, who knows it and who can say, you know, well, have you thought about this? Or, you know, there's this material that's out there. There's an there's a odd connection going on that we don't really fully uh, describe or appreciate. Um, it's actually captured in a lot of the explanations, particularly explanations that university chancellors give around science, which is, look at all the great things that we did that led, you know, look at all the great things that were led to by the things that we did, which is all retrospective. It's never prospective in the sense of, we knew what we were doing when we did it, and, it, and we, you know, it was simply a matter of looking back, we created these things, which really was, you know, it's, it's um, so I think, I think we need to recognize a little bit more that, that, that you don't control science in that way, so it's, it's dangerous to start investing in science as if you do. You need to treat science in a particularly different way than that, and, you know, and, and for most of the part, it has been treated differently. 
But these days, it's become the, the driver for change. And we expect it to be different. And I, and I think that's where we get into trouble. We had one yeah. last question. Last formal question. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have talked a lot about how innovation spurs and emerges new industries. But also, um, you pointed out that, that new industries can very rapidly, within a decade or two, freeze or multiply. Like the companies starting the electric industry, they are still around. And then, yeah. how can we as a society structure boundary conditions? so that these industries remain vivid and undergo a lot of, um, continue to undergo a lot of innovation. Oh, that's a, uh, I'm not sure you want that, actually. <laughs> that, that, that's, yeah, um, I mean, how many years do you want to spend buying a new phone every, every you know, year? I, it's, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, if you think, <laughs> now, but now we're back to the problem of living life in beta. You know, the old grids were not particularly reliable. And so what we got with that mortification of the industry, I think is your term, uh, a wonderful word, is, is reliability and performance. You know, we're, we're at, I think, one four hundredth the cost of illumination right now as we were back then. So we have an enormous benefit from that, that mortification setting in and the fine-tuning and the, in the making efficient of it all. Uh, I think what we're, you know, one of the challenges we have, though, is now we're back to the government, is our, is our regulatory environment actually needs to be more labile than, than it is. It's not keeping up with innovation. And so you know, the, it, there's, it's, it's hard enough making something new that's commercially viable, but when it needs to be new, commercially viable, and regulations, the regulatory environment needs to adapt to accommodate it. Uh, now you're now you're asking not just scientists and entrepreneurs to be involved, but scientists, entrepreneurs, and lobbyists. Yeah, and science and entrepreneur, the, you can't afford lobbyists, right? The, so there's a there's a real challenge here, and we're seeing it in microgrids, we're seeing it in community solar, we're seeing it, you know, in, in fuels that are, you know, the regulatory environment. If it doesn't change with the new opportunities and the new, you know, then then we're still frozen. I think all I did there was add one more variable to the mortification soup, but it's an important one. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.